Jesus was a masterful teacher. Um, whether he was teaching Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, whether he was doing his parables, or even just the way that he encountered people and, and, and some of the, the interactions that we learned from his life, he was constantly teaching the disciples. And by extension of that, I believe he was teaching the crowd around them that were watching. And by extension of that, I believe Jesus was teaching us of what it means to live um, in the kingdom of God. Uh, he often used, as part of his teaching, he often used parables. Uh, parables were, were stories um, that we often like, that, that they have like these quaint little moral truths. Um, I will say, by the way, that we always find them to be moral truths that we're comfortable with. Uh, but uh, he, he teaches us in parables. Um, but really what happens when you begin to look, the power of parables are the fact that Jesus teaches us this, something that's very ordinary. And then somewhere along the way, you get something that is kind of surreal that takes you bigger than yourself. Uh, and something astonishing about God begins to unveil itself. And what he does is he uses uh, some of these stories to show us that the kingdom of God changes everything. Um, and it teaches us how we're supposed to live uh, in that kingdom. Uh, so I, I want us to, to read today, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open up to Luke uh, uh, one of the Gospels in the New Testament, Luke chapter 5. Uh, if you're going to be using the Pew Bibles, uh, it's, I believe it's page 77 in your Pew Bible. Uh, we're going to read uh, Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. Luke 5, verses 33 through 39. It says, Some people said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and pray frequently. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But your disciples are always eating and drinking. Jesus replied, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? The days will come when the groom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Then he told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment to patch an old garment. Otherwise, the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't match the old garment. Nobody pours new wine into old wineskins. If they did, the new wine would burst the wineskins. The wine would spill and the wineskins would be ruined. Instead, new wine must be put into new wineskins. No one who drinks a well-aged wine wants new wine, but says the well-aged wine is better. Now, the wineskin parable it is helping us learn how to deal with change. The focus of the parable is about change. And the truth is we struggle with change. Um, I like to think of myself as one who is an advocate for change. I like to think that I like change. Um, however, last weekend proved me maybe not so much. Um, one, if y'all know, last weekend I was at a conference in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, one thing, I told Mary Lou, I was in Ohio for three days in April and it snowed all three days. And I thought, no wonder you moved here. Um, because that, that, the weather just was like, it's April. Why is it still snowing? And she told me today that it was still snowing uh, in Ohio. Um, but that really wasn't the change part. The change part was I went to a conference. And so the very first night, there was about 15 of us from North Georgia. And about 15 of us, we were sitting around tables. 
and we went to the introductory meeting and we had that. That was great. So the next morning we gather, we go back to our tables and we're all sitting around our tables and the facilitator of that morning session comes in and she says, and y'all are going to love this, she says, you need to sit at a different table with people you don't know. And I cringed. I did exactly what y'all do when I tell y'all to move pews. You know, is I was like, but I'm, I, I know these people. And, and what I realized in that moment was I love change if I initiate change. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Uh, we, we have this part of us that is just internal resistance to change. So y'all are appreciating that, right? <laughs> It's bad when your staff are hysterical. Um, but I do, I, you know, but we have this internal resistance. So when you really begin to think about how we work, neuroscientists have, have really discovered a lot with regards to our brain. And, and this is, we really have to know this when we think about change. One is the, the part of our brain that is the, the fight or flight mechanism, I think it's the amygdala, that, that the, brain, the, the brain cells that are in there Two to one move towards negative than positive. And so what happens is we often make decisions based on emotions rather than rational thinking. And they, they can prove this part of how the brain works. The gaps that we have in our knowledge when you don't know something, they, they, the fear mechanism kicks in. And so when there's something that's happening and you don't know it, what our natural tendency is going to be is fear is going to step in in that regard. The brain can only handle so much change. So when you have a lot of change occurring, it doubles up on your fear mechanism. All of these are things that are happening in our brain. They've shown that the, the further out change is, the more comfortable you are and what they have shown is that as if I told you something and it was a year out it doesn't seem so bad but then as it gets closer and the reality of the impact of that change comes it begins to to cause more struggle for us and it's our internal resistance and what happens is the brain often takes change as a threat and one of the fundamental principles that works in our brain is to minimize threat and maximize reward. And so all of these are chemical, take, chemical actions that take place in us when we deal with change. And so change seems like a threat, and so we fight against it. You think, okay, we think about this parable that Jesus is teaching us. See, Jesus knew that about us. How did he know about us? He created us. And so he knew that our tendency in our brain, the way it worked, was going to be moving towards danger, fear, and threat. And so he teaches us something about the kingdom of God. Now, to really understand what's going on in Luke 5, I want us to take us back. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip back to Luke 4. We're just going to kind of follow along for just a few moments, and we can kind of see what led up to Jesus' teaching. In Luke 4, and I'm not going to necessarily look at specific scriptures, but you can kind of see along with probably some of your headings that are in your Bible but in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we see Jesus preaching his first sermon. Now, if any preacher 
you talk to, my guess would be they can always tell you their first sermon. So the first sermon I ever preached at, at a, uh, in, in a church setting was my home church. And I had this envision that I was going to go and I was going to preach and people were going to come up. They were going to high five me at the end and they were going to tell me that their life is fundamentally different uh, as a result of what I said. It's probably the worst sermon I've ever written. But that was kind of in your head. You think... Jesus in his humanness probably expected some of the same reaction, but what the scripture tells us that when Jesus went to preach to his hometown, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Uh, not necessarily the reaction that most preachers enjoy um, getting from their sermon, but he, but he unsettled them. He unsettled his hometown because he was preaching that the gospel was not just for the Jews. It's going to be open to the Gentiles, and this troubled them. And then the scripture uh, goes on to say that at the end of chapter 4 that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That was against the rules. They weren't supposed to do that. And so this was troublesome once again to those who were watching. And then in Luke chapter 5, it begins with Jesus calling his disciples. And if you're a rabbi, you're, you're, you're going to call disciples. You're going to go to those who are theologically trained. Or you're going to go to people who can read and write. You're going to go to people who can understand a little bit about theology. Jesus goes to fishermen and he says, I want you to come and I'll make you fishers of men. And that was troublesome of how he would call his disciples. This was irregular. It wasn't the way you were supposed to do it. And then in 5 verse 12, you encounter a story with a leper. You weren't supposed to touch lepers because if you touch leper, you might get sick or at worst, you're going to be uh, ritually unclean. But it says that Jesus encountered this leper and came and he touched him and healed him. And again, you weren't supposed to do that. And so verse 17, the Pharisees have been watching all this take place and the Pharisees are beginning to have some tension develop between Jesus and Jesus is talking and Jesus is teaching and somebody brings the paralyzed man to Jesus. And Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and he says, uh, your sins have been forgiven. And the Pharisees are outraged because now he's blaspheming against God because the only person who can forgive sins is God. What's Jesus doing? And so you see this tension continue to build. And immediately after this, Jesus calls... Levi, a notorious sinner, to be his disciple. We know him as Matthew. And once again, somebody who's not supposed to be a disciple is a disciple. And they have a party, and Matthew goes and he invites all of his friends. Well, who do you get to come to the party when a notorious sinner throws the party? Other notorious sinners. So you have other tax collectors. You have prostitutes that come to the party, and the Pharisees are looking at this going, wait a minute. This is not how you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to interact with these people. Pharisees, by nature, and by the terminology and the term, is they're set apart. They, they feel like the way to be holy is to separate themselves. That's how, that's how they understood being holy. And so they say, you, you, you act like a Pharisee, you look like a Pharisee, you teach like a rabbi, but you're living so totally different. You're not supposed to do that. And so then we come to five, chapter 5, verse 33, and the people begin to look and realize that, that Jesus isn't fasting. Well, for Pharisees, fasting was important. They fasted every Monday and every Thursday, twice a week they fasted. Not because the Bible told them to do that. They did it because they felt like that was how you became spiritual. 
that as a Pharisee, you embrace this idea and God would be pleased with you if you would fast twice a week. And so as a Pharisee, you're supposed to fast twice a week. And they begin to notice that Jesus isn't fasting. The way he's living out his faith and the way that he's living out and teaching is different. And I love this because if you go and read the Gospels, the story, we get so many different versions. Matthew tells us that it's John the Baptist's disciples who question Jesus. Why aren't you fasting? We fast. Mark tells us it's the crowd who is upset. In Luke's gospel, it appears that it's the Pharisees or the Pharisees' disciples. What it tells me when you read all of these together is everybody was upset that Jesus was not living the way that they understood it was supposed to be. He was teaching differently. He was living a a, a, a pious life differently. And so they're beginning to compare what he's teaching with what they know and what they come to realize is they prefer the old way better. Look at our scripture again. In Luke 5, verses 36 through 39, it says, Then he told a parable. This is what led up to it. So he told a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment to patch an old garment. Otherwise, the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't match the old garment. Nobody pours new wine into old wineskins. If they did, the new wine would burst the wineskins. The wine would spill and the wineskins would be ruined. Instead, new wine must be put into new wineskins. No one who drinks a well-aged wine wants new wine, but says the well-aged wine is better. Now, look at verse 39. I want to show you this to you. This is verse 39 in just the NIV version, just that one. It says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. This is our reaction. And Jesus is teaching us what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Now, we read this, and we kind of still are a little bit perplexed. And why are we perplexed? Because most of us do not grow grapes in our backyard, nor do we make wine in our basement although some of you probably do, um, but, but most of us don't. So we have to really understand how do you make wine? I mean, wine was important in Jesus's day. So how do you, how do you make wine? Well, they, they would take the, the grapes and they would put them in the, um, the wine press. I always think of the old I Love Lucy show when they had the, when the wine press. So if you haven't ever seen that, go, go YouTube that one up. It's good. But, um, but they would put it in there and they would have people get in and they would wash, they would wash their feet. Then they would get in and they would walk on the, on the grapes and they would press it in with their toes. And the juice from the, from the grapes would flow down into the vat uh, and it would collect and it would pool up. And what they would do is they would take a cover and they would cover the juice that was in the wine vat. And they would let it sit um, for about a week. And... The yeast that was naturally forming on the outside of the grape would begin to ferment the, the juice. Uh, and it would produce two things. It would produce alcohol and carbon dioxide. Um, so after about a week, they would take a wineskin and pour that juice into the wineskin. Now the wineskin was a, basically a goat skin if you know what that is. And they would take it and they would take the, the legs of the goat, um, the, the, the skin of it, and they would tie it together, kind of like what you would think of a strap on a purse. Uh, and so they would tie that together and then they would take the juice and they would pour it in the neck of the, of the goat. And they would seal that up and then they would take that strap, they would hang it up and they would hang it there for about a year. 
in order to be able. And what would happen in that year is it would continue to produce two things. It would continue to produce that alcohol and it would continue to produce the carbon dioxide. So what would happen is the carbon dioxide would do what a chemical reaction which would be, which would it would begin to stretch the wineskin. So while it's hanging up for a year, it's going to bloat out. It's going to stretch. Think of it like a balloon. It's going to bloat out as far as it can go. And then the alcohol that's inside is basically treating the inside of the skin. So it's kind of hardening up. It can't go much further. And so over the course of the year, it's going to stretch as far as it can stretch. It's going to seal up and harden as much as it can. And then they're going to come back at the end of the year. They're going to pour out that wine and they're going to have wine. And you know, because we would probably do the same thing, is when they got through with the wine, when they poured the wine out, they had this used wine skin. What do you do with a used wine skin? Well, they would think, I'm going to be the person who's going to make it work twice. Uh, and so they would take that old wine skin somewhere along the way and somebody poured new wine into it. Well, it went through the same chemical reaction. So it produced alcohol, produced carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide tried to stretch it, but you know what? It had already been stretched as far as it could possibly stretch. It was treated inside. It was hardened, so it couldn't necessarily go anymore. And so it could only do one thing, which was burst. And all of the wine would pour on the ground. And all of their work of accumulating those grapes, standing in that grape and mashing it, all of that was for nothing. All of the people who heard Jesus teaching this understood this principle. They understood what it meant to not be able to pour new wine into an old wineskin. See, I think... I think Jesus was looking at how the Pharisees were questioning everything he was doing. I think they were looking at how he was eating with sinners, how he was eating with tax collectors, how he wasn't fasting, how he was forgiving sins. I think he was saying they're looking around and you're, you have a lot of old wineskins, a lot of ideas about religion and theology, and we are stuck in the past and in the kingdom of God. As people of God, we got to be pliable. We got to be pliable. We got to be open to allowing God to do something new. See, the reality is throughout the Old Testament, it tells us that God wants to do something new. God wants to do something new in us, and God wants to do something new in, in, in other people. God wants to do something new, but the reality is we don't like new things. Plain and simple. And that's true for all of us. It's the way our brain works. But in the kingdom of God, we got to be pliable and open to something new. And so if God wants to do something new, if God wants to reach new people, if God wants to do it in a new way, we've got to realize we're going to prefer it always the old way. And so Jesus tells us that. He says, after, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better that's true for everybody. That's true for all of us in the room. And Jesus is saying that in order to, to deal with the gospel that I'm coming to share with you, you got to have pliable wineskins. you got to be open to the Holy Spirit moving in you. you got to be open to the Holy Spirit moving in this place. And we have to remember that when, they're, when, when Luke's writing this, it's about 30 years after Jesus has died, and it's a period of time where the Jews 
are saying to the Christians, um, you got to leave because you're teaching something that's different. And so we don't want you here anymore. And so the people who were listening to this, listening to Luke's recount of Jesus' teachings, they would have known what it meant to have an old wineskin not want to hear something new. They would have known what that felt like. And often in the church, we're really bad about that. There's a joke that you get at every preacher's meeting when you ever hear the phrase, we never did it that way before. And folks, preachers are the worst at saying that. We can be just as resistant to change. David Jeremiah said that's the seven words that will kill your church. We never did it that way before. The truth is, the longer we sit here, the more comfortable we become. We are. We get used to the songs we sing. We get used to the style of preaching. We get used to our space. We get used to the movement, the way things work. We get comfortable. But here is what I know. If you have eight kids that come in confirmation today, if you have 30 kids that come to Kid City today, in 20 years, are they going to sing the same songs? Are they going to want to do church the same way we do church? Are they going to want to sit in the same space and do the same things? Are they going to be dressed the same way that we're dressed? There's questions that we struggle with, what we have to really struggle with. And I understand that it's a struggle, but the struggle that we have to do is, are we willing to change so that the gospel of Jesus Christ reaches those eight kids and those 30 kids? Or are we going to stand strong and sing our songs? sit in our space and say we've never done it that way? Or are we willing to be pliable and to do something different? These are your children, your grandchildren, and I'll take it on a personal level, this is my child that we're talking about. A couple of weeks ago, we had a prayer service every Tuesday night, and one of those Tuesday nights, uh, some of the outreach kids would come up, and one of the outreach kids came up and she was barefoot. And my first reaction was, I don't think you're supposed to be barefoot. Um, I thought, you know, where's this a sanctuary? It's a holy time. You're not supposed to come in here like that. And this is what was in my head. I didn't say it, but in my head I'm thinking, that's not very respectful. Um, and just as I thought that, I thought, God said, okay, Think back to a burning bush. Um, what did God tell Moses to do? Uh, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And I thought, okay, maybe she's more biblical than I am uh, in the moment. But, but we have this tendency to struggle. And I realize probably at this moment all of you are like, what are you fixing to announce? Uh, I don't have any announcement. I'm not making any fundamental change. I'm saying is that in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to have pliable wineskins. We're supposed to 
to be willing to, to change. And when we have that resistance come up, we're supposed to acknowledge it and go, okay, that's, that's just the way my brain is working and wired. But in the kingdom of God, I got to be open to the movement of the Holy Spirit moving in this place and moving in me. Because if we don't, please don't be offended when I say this, if we don't in 20 years, some of us are not going to be here just because we're not going to be here. But those eight kids and those 30 kids, they're not going to be here either. And we're going to be half who we are, singing our songs, sitting in our space, and we will cease being the church that Jesus Christ created us to be. We have got to be open and pliable to allow the Holy Spirit to move in us. Move in this place. And there's more implications than just simply, please don't hear this as a worship thing. There's so many more implications. We, we, we can't take the Bible and use it as a weapon. We've got to be open and pliable to allow the Holy Spirit to move. Back in the 16th, 17th century, science and religion began to have tension. Y'all know I, I love science. So science and tension began to have, the science and religion began to have tension. And they, 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 they struggled because Galileo came up and said, okay, that the earth revolves around the sun. And the church said, okay, wait a minute. It says in scripture that the sun stood still. And so therefore the sun has to move. And so everything in their theological suppositions were that the earth was the center of everything. And so they, they charged him with heresy because he was teaching something, he was saying something that was contrary to what they understood at that moment. And it took a hundred years before the church became pliable enough to realize we're not the center of the universe. We, we, we've got to be open to the Holy Spirit moving do you realize that the church advocated for slavery listen to a quote by Jefferson Davis slavery was established by decree of almighty God it is sanctioned in the Bible in both testaments from Genesis to Revelation it has existed in all ages has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts and if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, because the truth is, that's true. The Bible doesn't command it, but the Bible certainly sanctions it in places. And that was because the people who were the authors, they, they, they lived in a world where they could not fathom a world where slavery didn't exist. But somewhere along the way, the church became pliable. To realize, okay, wait a minute, if I look at Jesus' teachings, Jesus was teaching that we're supposed to love our neighbor and everybody is my neighbor. And so in the kingdom of God, that is not the way God would want us to live. And so the church became pliable to be able to understand things differently. I had a friend of mine who yesterday was telling me that she's a female pastor in a church. And she said that her church... She was going to have to move because her church just could not accept a female pastor. And it's 2018. 
And we live in a world where we can stop and see. I mean, we, we can go into scriptures and we can see how Jesus used women and, and, how, and how women were used in ministry. And yet we're still struggling. The church has to be pliable. What your question for today is, are you pliable? Are you pliable in your spirit to allow the Holy Spirit to move? If you go look at the gospel in Luke chapter 15, you get the parable of the prodigal son. And probably if you've grown up in church, you know that story. But there's the father who represents God. And then there's the younger son who wastes everything. And we can all relate to the younger son in the story. But there's an older brother in the story. And the older brother comes home and he, he sees the commotion after the younger brother has come back. And he goes, he's trying to figure out what's happening. And they say, your younger brother has come back and we're going to have a big party for him. And the older brother, who represents those who, who remain faithful in the story, the older brother's like, I'm not happy about this. And I don't want to go to a party. And so the father comes to him and says, please come inside. Please come to the party. He says, I've been faithful to you my whole life. And you haven't thrown a party for me? And the father turns to the older brother and he says, but your brother was lost. And now he's found. That's what matters the most. Jesus teaches us about God. He teaches us the attributes of God. And the attributes of God, we see fairness and justice, but we also see love and mercy. And I'm so thankful that we have both. Fairness and justice and love and mercy. But when God has to choose between fairness and justice and love and mercy, love and mercy win every time. Sometimes that's unsettling. Because what that means is we have to welcome in people who look differently than we do. We have to welcome people to a barbecue who may not be dressed the way that we think they need to be dressed. We have to reach out to people that might make us uncomfortable to do that. But let me tell you something. I am thankful that love and mercy went out over fairness and justice. Because I need love and mercy. I don't want fairness and justice. That's what Jesus challenges us. To be open. Open to a new way of God moving. And so I just simply ask you this morning. Are you open to the Holy Spirit moving in you? Are you open to the Holy Spirit moving in this place? Are you open to doing new things, new ways to reach new people? Are you open to doing things differently so that those eight young people and those 30-something kids, all of them can come to know the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? My prayer is that Stockbridge First becomes very, pliable we allow the Holy Spirit to pour into this place may we be a new wineskin for the Holy Spirit to move amen let's pray as we pray this morning and in a minute I'm going to ask Michael to come up and sing I want to invite you. I want to invite you to 
to respond to God. You can certainly respond in your seat, but I also want to invite you to respond at the altar. If you find yourself resistant to change, this is a struggle. I pray that in this moment, you just allow yourself to be open to the Holy Spirit moving. Come acknowledge. Repent. But acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit moving in us. And I pray for those who, who feel like this is a, a, a strength. I invite you to come forward and, and just pray for us as a church. Give God praise that His Holy Spirit is raining down and moving in us. But, but, but ask the Holy Spirit to keep moving. Keep showing us ways that we can reach new people for Him. May we listen to the Holy Spirit this morning as we respond to the movement of God. Amen.